Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Mark Humphreys about the spike. If you enjoy this chat or any of my conversations with an author enough to want to buy the book, I've made it easy for you. Just click the book title through the episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast, and it takes you to a link to buy the book through bookshop.org. Now, they don't pay me anything to say this, but I love bookshop.org because it connects readers with independent bookstores. And for the latest on this podcast, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Books on Pod. This is Lisa Feldman Barrett author of Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, and you are listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Mark Humphreys is chair in computational neuroscience at the University of Nottingham, founding editor of the online publication The Spike, and the author of the new book, also called The Spike, an epic journey through the brain in 2.1 seconds. Mark, thank you for the time today. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you, Trey. Thank you for inviting me on. Sure thing. So for some context with regards to the entirety of this book, obviously the title is The Spike, the subtitle being An Epic Journey Through the Brain in 2.1 Seconds. What exactly is this spike that you reference in the title? Yeah, so the spike is the way that the neurons in your brain talk to each other. So you have, what, 87 billion neurons in your brain? And each connects to the others through this really thin cable. And down those cables, it passes these tiny electrical pulses. Those electrical electrical pulses, you see them on an oscilloscope, they all jump up and they jump down, and they look like a little spike, just like you see in a, in a cardiogram with a heartbeat spike. So neuroscientists call the pulses passed between neurons the spike, and it is through these spikes that everything that we do happens. So we're deeply interested in understanding what they mean and how they're made and uh, what affects them as they are transmitted around the brain. What happens when a neuron creates a spike? So a neuron is receiving hundreds to thousands of inputs from other neurons around the brain. So each of those inputs turns up in the form of a spike. But when it gets to the neuron receiving it, it's turned into a little tiny fluctuation in that neuron's voltage. So what that neuron is doing is it's adding up all these inputs, these tiny little fluctuations in voltage. At some point, that voltage grows to a point where it gets big enough that it triggers this runaway process that creates this spike. So what a spike is to a neuron is it's that neuron's way of telling the rest of the brain, hey, I got enough input to be worth telling you guys that I got this input. So it's a way of transmitting that I have uh, you know, been given sufficient information to tell you what it is that I mean. I guess uh, as an easy way to help explain to people some of what you're describing throughout today's conversation, it would be good to cite the example that you use throughout your book, and that is you're at work. It's the afternoon, you're at the end of a long day, and you see a cookie nearby your desk, and you're considering whether or not to grab that cookie and eat it for that mid to late afternoon sugar rush. So when your retinas receive information like spotting the cookie that is there for the taking, it receives that info and creates the neurospikes that eventually work their way through the brain and then also throughout your body. Retinas are also filled with neurons. I don't know if people realize that or not. So why don't these neurons spike when delivering messages to other neurons? So the ones in the retina, yeah. So indeed, the retina is really a mini brain all of its on its own. It's a nice little closed environment stuffed full of neurons. So the retina at the back of your eyeball essentially is three layers of neurons. So the one we know best is the one where the, the cones and rods. 
So that's where the light, the photons fall upon the cones and the rods. And when a photon hits one, they release a little disk. That disk creates a little voltage change. It transmits immediately a change in its voltage to the next neuron along. And indeed, that layer in, in turn transmits voltage along. And the reason they transmit directly rather than sending spikes is because they're right next to each other. So the reason we want to send, we are, and we think that brains end up sending spikes, is that anything you want to tra transmit over distance, you want to send in this discrete form, this form that enables the axon to sustain it over long distances. Whereas if you try and transmit voltage directly, then that voltage fades over a matter of a few millimeters at best. So you can't transmit information properly using just pure voltage unless things are right next to each other. And in the retina, it's the one part of the brain where all your neurons are packed right up next to each other, as tightly as they can be, so they can talk to each other directly. But then as soon as the retina wants to talk to the rest of the brain, it turns it into spikes and it spits them off down the optic nerve off to your cortex. The accuracy of these spikes messages truly is a remarkable aspect of the human existence. Why do scientists like studying rats' whiskers to really better learn the intake of sensory information that is then passed along in such an accurate manner? There is a whole group of neuroscientists who are deeply in love with the rat's whisker system. They adore it. One reason is simply that it is an excellent model for the retina. Our retina is an incredibly complex processing device. It says it has those three layers of neurons. We have millions upon millions of neurons just in the retina alone. And they're representing all the space that we can see in front of us. There'll be thousands of neurons per each tiny pixel of space that we can see. Whereas the rat's whiskers is only, what, 26 of them. And there are dedicated neurons for each whisker. So we can know exactly which whisker is sending what information to which neurons. Which means we have this really detailed picture in that system of the sensory information coming into the animal, so its whisker getting bent in some way. The spikes that are coming off the very first neuron in that system, when the whisker is being bent, the spike comes off that and goes through the brainstem up to the higher brain centers. Which means that then we can, we can test in great detail what it is that spikes on that whisker are telling the rest of the brain. And as you alluded to, it's one of the areas where we know most quite how precisely the brain can use and set in spikes. So there are experiments where you can take a, a rat's whisker and you wobble it backwards and forwards in a particular pattern, and you can watch those spikes being sent in response to that pattern. So the spikes will look quite irregular, quite spaced irregularly in time. But if you wiggle that whisker in exactly the same pattern again, then exactly the same pattern of spikes will be repeated again coming out of that whiskers neuron. And that pattern of spikes will repeat. It won't miss any spikes or repeat exactly the same spikes. But it also repeat in time that's precise enough so that the, the spikes are within a couple of picoseconds of each other. So they're extraordinarily precise spikes. When considering the components of neurons, you think about the axon, which is very important in sending neural spikes to other neurons. And when I close my eyes and think about it, it looks kind of like the neuron's antenna. How are axons built to pass along this information, these uh, electrical signals, so quickly? So, yeah, so the textbook picture of a neuron has this single cable coming out of it called the axon. It tends to just draw this little lovely straight line that goes on to the next neuron in the chain. But in reality, an axon is an incredibly torturous, messy cable that's much, very much like a headphone cable. It's wound round and round and round. And from that cable, constantly branches bits of axon that go off to go to target other areas. So they branch 
hugely close to the neuron, so it'll contact many thousand neurons around the one it's sent from. It will branch so that it goes off into the white matter in the cortex, and it will go on to regions that are very far away from the starting point or the starting neuron, and often it will even send an axon out to the other side of the brain. So rather than being this lovely, simple, smooth little cable, it's this massively ramifying tree, which often takes up vastly more space than even the, under, the neuron's own dendrite itself. What do you mean when you refer to the brain as a sort of neural orchestra? So this is a, a lovely metaphor for trying to understand how much neurons work together to send messages. So given that single neuron requires, as I said, hundreds to thousands of inputs to create a new spike, it means that the best way you can guarantee that a neuron will make a new spike is if all of its inputs turn up at the same time, which means we're interested in when, when the spikes between different neurons are happening at the same time, are correlated. And the orchestra metaphor was this idea that if we just take a look at a whole bunch of neurons recorded at the same time, we can see whether they are indeed firing together, they're operating like an orchestra or playing from the same score, or whether there are neurons that are paying no attention to what the rest of the other neurons are doing, are kind of soloists that are sputtering away, sending their spikes, irrespective of what's happening in the rest of the neurons around them. And when we do that, we do indeed see there is various studies that have now shown, according to bits of cortex, that most neurons roughly track what all the other neurons are doing. So there is some kind of sort of ensemble of neurons that are creating this uh, fairly harmonious spiking. And yet there are still, everywhere we look, there are these neurons that are firing away, completely oblivious what's happening around them. So there's uh, this orchestra, these apparent soloists that are playing away merrily to their own tune. And these neurons are spiking to neurons at varying distances. It's not like they're just sending this message to the neuron that is directly next to it. I mean, there are neurons receiving this spike from near and far away. Are different things occurring at these varying distances, or is it simply an attempt for that neuron and its axon to spread that message as far and wide as possible? So the best guess would be that it's trying to send the same message as far and wide as possible, yeah. So we know that at least locally, when it sends it to neurons that are next to it, our best interpretation there is it's trying to reinforce other neurons to send the same messages with it. So it's this, as you say, this orchestra idea that we're trying to recruit the orchestra around that neuron to send the same messages forward. See, those messages then get can get sent on further. So example of a cortical neuron, those messages can get sent further to other cortical regions from the one where that neuron is starting from. And when it gets there, we're assuming it's trying to send that same information. So it's a neuron sending information about an edge in the world, maybe an edge, as you say, on our example of a cookie, so a crumbly bit of chocolate in there, a bit of ginger, whatever, that those spikes are saying to regions farther, far down in the brain that yes, there is a bit of, there's an edge of a bit of chocolate here. And that's because those bits of the brain are involved in putting together those information together with other bits of information about other edges nearby, about textures or colors to producing some sort of coherent picture of the world. And then even further, then there are often neurons in cortex which send their axons to the other side, the other hemisphere of the brain. And what they are for, we don't really know because it's very, very hard to record from both sides of the brain at the same time and know that the side you're recording from is receiving spikes from where you're at, from your from the other side. So we have some guesses. I mean, one one guess is that it's there just to make sure that the both sides of the brain know what the other side of the brain is doing. 
So we know from split brain patients where you've had the fibers that connect the two sides of cortex cut because it's used to treat severe epilepsy, that often the two sides of the brain don't talk to each other properly. You can show things to one side, which the other side doesn't know anything about, and it will make up stuff to try and understand what has been shown. So that implies that these spikes crossing both sides of the brain are there really to make sure that there is communication about what the two sides of the brain mean. So if one side of the brain sees a bird flying through the sky, that the other side of the brain also understands there's a bird flying through the sky, and your consciousness is not split between two understandings of reality. Is this cross-hemisphere communication something that is pretty uniquely human? No. So we know that all mammals have a corpus callosum, this, this, this fiber system that connects the two hemispheres. And I would imagine that pretty much any brain, like bird brains and so on, anything that usually is a bilateral animal with a brain will have two hemispheres that are connected together by fibers going across them. But the unique thing in humans, of course, is principally that we have language and our language tends to be centered only on the left hemisphere. So if we split our hemispheres in two, then the right hemisphere of the brain, controlling the left side of the brain, doesn't have access to language very well. So we can show things to the right hemisphere of the brain, like pictures or objects, and it can know what to do with them. It knows how to pick them up and manipulate them and do things with them, but it doesn't know what to call them because it can't access the words that are on the left-hand side. So it is in, in humans that we see the most striking effects of having the two hemispheres. And indeed, there is evidence that humans have the most lateralized brains of any animal that, that we have. We have specializations of language on one side. We have specializations of other aspects of our environment in the other. What is spike failure, and does it hinder or benefit neural activity? Spike failure was my favorite thing to write about in the book. So it's something that's really not well known even to most neuroscientists. So it's something I wanted to really open up this little Pandora's box. So... At that point in the book, I've talked for a number of chapters about this great journey that the spike is taken from the retina through to the early visual areas of cortex and going forward to different areas of cortex. And we're leaping from axon to neuron, down the neurons, x-axon to the next neuron. And suddenly at some point, the spike from that neuron fails to have any effect on the neuron on the other side. So it fails to jump to the next neuron. And that failure of the spike, far from being a rare occurrence, actually appears to be in cortex the dominant mode of what happens. So we have evidence from across areas of cortex and the hippocampus that the average failure rate of a spike at an individual synapse gap between any, a pair of neurons is about 75%, which means only 25% of spikes actually make it. And this is a deep mystery because why would the brain go to all this trouble of making these spikes that cost a lot of energy? About half of our ongoing energy budget of our brain is spent making these spikes. So why would you make them all and then have them fail? So this deep mystery has intrigued a number of theorists because theorists love these kind of paradoxes where you see these. It's clearly it's making the spikes, fine, but also we know that having them fail is, is insane because you're using all this energy to make them and you're wasting them. So there are a number of theories why. So I'll touch on a couple. One is this beautiful idea that what it's doing is reducing the fact that many spikes that are sent are redundant. So from a one neuron to another, that sort of neuron that's sending the axon will often make multiple connections onto a single neuron. So if it sends the same spike over all, say, five or six connections, it's sending the same information five or six times, which means the energy expended in processing that input is five times as big as it needs to be given you're sending the same information. So if you only to send that information through just one of those five connections, you would then use a fifth of the energy for the same information being sent. So one of the ideas of spike failure is what it's there is deliberately making sure that neurons that make many contacts on another 
are actually making the best use of their energy because they're only sending that spike through one of those contacts at a time and not for the neuron on the other side, using all of its energy up, processing all that input all the time. Another sort of more intriguing reason for having spike failure is that we use failure a lot in artificial neural networks. So when we want artificial neural networks to learn things, we show them lots of, you know, maybe it's once learning stuff about images. We show them lots of images and we ask them to classify those images. So for example, I might show them images of a gorillas, I ask them to classify as gorillas, images of cats, images of ladders, images of dogs, whatever. And if you then show the neural network a new picture it's not seen before and ask it, what is this? Then of course you want it to answer, it's a gorilla, it's a cat, it's a dog, whatever. But often they'll get the answer wrong because it's a picture of a gorilla saying you want to say gorilla, but the gorilla has been pictures at a slight angle to one it's ever seen before and it gets it wrong. That's because the, the networkers in learning these categories has really overgeneralized on the specifics of the pictures it has been shown rather than saying extracting these things which are, are sort of gorilla-ness. It's really honing on fine details. And the way that you solve that in artificial neural networks is that you deliberately make the connections between the neurons and, the net and those networks fail so that every time it's shown a picture, it's looking at being shown to a slightly different network it's because a bunch of those connections in there have been taken away. And by doing that, by showing it many, 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 many pictures, and it had been shown to network was failing over and over again, it means that it's not being able to learn the specific details of each of those pictures, but it's better able to generalize to this idea in this case of gorillaness. So one reason the brain may have this synaptic failure, this failure of the spikes, is simply then to allow it to generalize better. So just like the neural networks use it, maybe our brains need it so that when we're learning things about the environment, we don't hone in on the specifics of the particular thing in front of us, but we learn more to generalize what's out there in the world. So I'm a big proponent of failure being necessary for a person to evolve. Spike failure is essentially the essence of that then, huh? Yeah, so one point of view is that spike failure is both a way for us to learn more easily and to learn to generalize it beyond the specifics of what we're being seen, shown. And also, as I touched on the book, as a way for our brains for us to be search for solutions. So whenever we look at algorithms that we use on computers for searching for things, we always deliberately inject noise into those algorithms to stop them from getting stuck in mediocre solutions that are difficult to get away from. So we inject noise into the search process to jump them out of those solutions. So another reason for having noise in the brain, the synaptic failure, is to make us potentially also jump out of these small solutions. So in that way, the spike failure is also there to help us come up with better solutions for the problems facing us. You referenced dark neurons a little bit earlier in this conversation. These are neurons that don't register activity while other neurons are sending spikes. But as they lie dormant, are they still serving a purpose? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. So the so in the book I'll talk about, we have lots of evidence now that if you look at a given chunk of the cortex, at least half the spikes being given sent by any chunk of the cortex is sent by just 10% of the neurons. So fully half all the activity is sent by this tiny handful of neurons. And we can see that there are a majority of neurons that no matter how long you watch them are sending nothing at all. And again, just like this spike failure, that's a total mystery from the point of view of the energy budget of the brain. We know that our brains you know, use up 20% of our resting energy all day long. So why expend all this energy on neurons sitting there, which apparently are sending no messages whatsoever? So there are 
I sketched three answers for this, and no doubt there will be more. And one of the reasons for talking about these is to prod people into thinking about them more deeply because the dark neurons, not just in terms of what they're in the brain, but they're missing from most theories of how the brain works. So those three reasons, one is simply that because also we, we record these neurons in lab experiments, perhaps the lab experiments where we're recording them from, they're just simply not interesting enough. So those neurons are interesting stuff in the world, which we never ever show them. We never have them do that thing. We never ever show them that thing. When we show animals videos to watch and record from their visual regions of cortex, often those videos are of the matrix for some reason. <laughs> so you can see Keanu Reeves walking around in a trench coat. <laughs> but there may be lots of things about the world that those neurons are interested in that just aren't in the matrix. You know, in theory, everything's in the matrix, but in the film, there's not the things those neurons are interested in. So they're just never going to fire a spike because they never see the thing that they're interested in. And the same for movements and the same for decision-making, the same for memory and planning and so on. They're just not engaged by what we give them to do because the tasks we give them to do are so simple and so trivial. Of course, another reason for having them might be just that they're the reserve army. So over our lifetimes, you know, we have millions of things to learn. We have huge capacity for learning. And if all of our neurons were dedicated to specific functions from the get-go, then we would have very little capacity for recruiting new things, new representations and new, thing, new, new ways of representing things in the world or putting together ideas. And the third one is, of course, that then, see, there are some neurons that are genuinely totally silent, but there are many, many then that are very, very quiet that we hardly ever see spike. But then if you add up all their spikes together, of course, then collectively they're sending a lot. So it may well be that actually they're sending messages just fine. It's just that we have to look at a huge scale, scale of thousands or tens of thousands of neurons at once to see them sending a message because it's just of those 10,000 neurons, maybe it's just a handful, 10 to 100 that are sending actually spikes, and most of them are quiet almost all the time we see them. So we never see the message unless we record tens of thousands of neurons and understand that these are actually being sent roughly together. That's the message they're sending. That third concept makes the most sense to me. Does that make the most sense out of those three ideas to you too? To me, it does, yeah. So my research is particularly on what large populations of neurons are encoding in their activity. And we can see all sorts of weird and wonderful things when we do that. We can see that, for example, when we record from like from 50 neurons in prefrontal cortex, that even though each of those individual neurons seems not to care about anything in the world, they're firing away spikes, but they don't change their activity in response to something happening in the world. When we look at the activity across all of them, we can happily decode anything that's happening in the world that we want to, to take a look at. So... Similarly, given that, as I said, a single neuron needs hundreds, maybe inputs to make it create a new spike. Even just a tiny handful of those dark neurons, 10,000 of them are firing a spike, then that's enough to make another neuron fire a spike down the chain and keep a message being passed on. So yeah, to me, that makes the most sense. But of course, like a good scientist, I'm open to being wrong and the other options being available. There is a sort of debate in the world of neural messaging research that is essentially splitting the factions up into a sort of Beatles or Rolling Stones category. And that is whether neural messages need frequency or timing more to accurately pass these messages along. Are you in one category or the other, or do you believe that perhaps it's a little bit of both? Yeah, so I think I'm getting to the opinion that that debate is a little bit of both, yeah. Most dichotomous scientific debates end up with the answer being somewhere in the middle. 
So in the debate you're talking about is this idea that because obviously neurons are sending spikes, since we've recorded the first of them back in uh, 1925, Lord Adrian recorded the first spikes, we've been wanting to know what they mean. So as you say, up grew these two camps. One camp, which I call the book The Timers, are the ones who think that the meaning is carried in when the spike is sent. So it's about the precise time when it is dispatched by the neuron. An example of that was when we're talking about the earlier about the rat whisker and the fact we wobble the rat whisker. We repeat the same pattern of wobbling of the rat whisker. You get exactly the same pattern of spikes being sent from the neuron each time. So there we have very precise timing. It's evident there. The other count then is this the sort of the counters, the ones who believe that you have to count up the number of spikes rather than the timing of the spikes to understand the message because you need many spikes to create a new one. So the, new, so the more spikes you send to a neuron, the more likely it is to make another one. So it makes more sense from that point of view to understand that it's the number of spikes that are sent. And indeed, in various areas of the brain, you can go in and record. You have something happen in the world. So, you know, again, you can show an animal a simple picture. And you'll find neurons that fire lots of spikes to a particular part of that picture or lots of spikes to particular angles of edges in that picture or lots of spikes to particular colors in that picture. And it seems to make sense that there is a way of sending this information via spikes. But as I outlined in the book, both of those camps then have, have evidence in favor of them, really strong evidence in favor of them, and then obviously evidence against each other. So one of the solutions may be simply that they're both asking the wrong question. So they always are applied to the output of a single neuron. So they're interested in, does a single neuron send information by the timing of its spikes or by the count of its spikes? Whereas the question from the point of view of the neuron that's receiving this information isn't the timing or the number coming from one neuron, of course. It has to look across hundreds or thousands of neurons in its input. So if it doesn't particularly care whether one neuron sends its information by its counting or its timing, it cares when it gets lots of spikes at once from all of its inputs. So from that point of view, the question really goes away. It's really about a question of what the receiving neuron is seeing, not what the sending neurons are meaning. And so it's from that perspective that a lot of people now take on this sort of neural coding, neural messaging problem of understanding what the neuron is getting, not what it's sending. Beetles or stones? Beetles. Fair enough. I'm a little bit of both, just like the timing versus frequency. More seriously, though, your lab and others have studied whether you can actually tell what is happening in the outside world based on the pattern of neurons sending spikes. What did you learn about this? And this is one of the most fascinating parts of this book, in my opinion. Yeah, so that moves nicely from what we were just talking about. So us, yes, and many teams around the world, we're interested in this idea that Neurons send messages together as a group, as an ensemble, a population. And what we do is we look at, say, a recording of 50, 100, or however many neurons recorded simultaneously in the brain, and look at the spikes sent by each of those neurons. So in our, one of our studies, what we looked at was we have a rat running up a, a maze. It's a little Y-shaped maze where it has to run up the sort of stem of the Y, and at the point where it splits into the left and right arms of the Y, as to decide whether to go to the left or the right. And if it chooses correctly, when it gets to the end of the arm, it'll get a little reward, which is chocolate milk, because all rats love chocolate milk. Hmm. Even more than chocolate Weetos. They love chocolate Weetos too, but chocolate milk is, <laughs> is even better. Noted. Yeah. And so what the rat is trying to learn here, trying to learn the rule about how does my decision end up with a reward or not? So the first rule they have to learn is to go to the left, and then unbeknownst to them, once they've learned that, there actually there are, there's a light at the end of each arm. And this light is 
on at the end of one of the arms randomly. So having learned to go to the left, the next role is to go to the arm where the light is on. So as you can imagine, once they learn to go to the left quite successfully, when you switch the rule, they get very confused for quite a long time. And so they finally figure out they're supposed to be going to the one with the light on. Because the first thing they have to do is they have to notice that the light is relevant at all. So while they were doing all this, uh, collaborator of ours, Adrian Perash, was recording the neurons in their prefrontal cortex. And he's recording your prefrontal cortex because that's the area we think is most likely to be controlling how it switches learning different things. So recording, say, somewhere between 10 to 50 neurons simultaneously in prefrontal cortex, depending on how lucky they were that day to get how many neurons and which rat they were looking at. And so the question that we could then ask was, okay, so they've got this rat running up this maze and it gets its reward. And then after it's got its reward, it has to go all the way back to the start of the maze again, trudge back down the arm through the split point back down to the beginning. And we were wondering what it was thinking about on the way back. Was it thinking about whether it got its reward? Was it thinking about whether it had gone left or right? And was it thinking about whether the light was on or off? All these bits of information that would have been useful for it to think about in order to understand what it was supposed to be learning. So we could take the activity in the prefrontal cortex while it was trudging back to the start. And we could ask, can we tell whether it was had gone left or right? Can we tell whether it had got reward or not? And could we tell whether it had got the light was on or not? And in all three cases, we could. So we could decode almost perfectly whether it had just chosen to go left or right. So we always knew whether it had just chosen left or had just chosen right when it was walking back. We always knew whether it had a reward or not. We always knew whether it had the light was on or not at the end of the arm. What was particularly interesting about the last one with the light was that being able to decode the light, being able to see the light in this pattern of activity, only happened once the animal had become realized that the light was relevant. So it was invisible for many, many days while it was going to the left constantly. And then finally, at some point when the rule changed to go to the arm with the light on, suddenly we could then decode the activity of the light from the prefrontal cortex. And as I noted earlier, the, the really key thing here is, so we're doing this by looking at the pattern of activity across, say, 20 neurons, just how many spikes they're sending. And it didn't even require that each of the individual neurons seem to care about any of these features. So we look at one neuron, look at its spikes, then we can't tell just from its spikes whether it had gone left or gone right. It was only by looking at them across the entire population could we tell perfectly what had happened. So it really was a, a message encoded in the population of neurons, the group of neurons, rather than encoded by any individual neuron itself. You just referenced the prefrontal cortex and what it's doing throughout the course of the spike and helping us to better understand and predict what's about to happen. The prefrontal cortex is obviously so important to our existence as humans. Is its most important function with the spike uh, the fact that it is serving as a sort of memory buffer? Yeah, the prefrontal cortex is one of the big mysteries of the human brain. So we know it does a huge number of things. We know it's important in as you touched on there, important to holding things in memory for a short time. We know it's important in decision-making. We know it's important in our social interactions. We know it's important even in very complex aspects of, of our visual system. And that's partly because the prefrontal cortex is roughly the, th the front third of our cortex. And we have pretty good ideas of what the two thirds coming from the back forward are doing, but the prefrontal cortex is rather more mysterious. So there certainly are areas within it in which are, are really key for our ability to hold things in mind. So whether that be, you know, a phone number or where we put our keys just now or a small thing we just thought to go into another room and do and hold that in our minds. And obviously, as we get older, forget as we go into that room. 
then all those things are held in prefrontal cortex. And indeed, we can temporarily turn off bits of prefrontal cortex in animals and see that their short-term memory disappears completely. They're unable to hold stuff in mind. So of the many functions assigned to the prefrontal cortex, that short-term memory ability is one that we're absolutely happy for once as neuroscientists that it does. Spikes might be amplest in the premotor cortex. Is this because of the sheer complexity of getting the body in unison to do something, even something as simple as, let's say, picking up a cookie? Yeah, so once we get through to the motor cortex, the motor cortex is dealing with the problem of coordinating all our all our limbs and coordinating lots of complex muscle groups all at once. So in the cortex, in motor cortex in particular, we need the activity of the neurons to be coordinated, to be correlated, to make sure that they are contracting the muscles that they are meant to be doing. So an example I give in the book, obviously, is of this cookie and picking up the cookie at the end of the journey through the brain. And to do that, we need to have multiple muscle groups move. So we need the shoulder to move forward. So that's a set of neurons somewhere in the middle of the prefrontal cortex. We need the arm to move as well. So that obviously we need our biceps to be contracting a little. We need the fingers to be moving. So we need the muscles in our forearm to be moving. And all that is a program that has to be set in play and has to be prepared for. So the whole there's a big role for premotor cortex spikes in preparing for movement by making sure that spikes in your primary motor cortex which are going to move these muscles are going to be in the right state so that when you initiate that movement that movement just happens are things as complex and crazy in the motor cortex as they are in the premotor cortex some are saying no <laughs> fortunately so in the motor cortex we have a fairly good idea that activity there is directly involved in contracting the muscles so we have that there is a direct path from the primary motor cortex down into the spine where those neurons protecting out the motor cortex connect to the motor neurons into neurons and spinal cord and are making the movement happen so we've got a better sort of handle on the concrete thing that's being encoded in the primary motor cortex and that's going to be encoding something about the spikes coming out of there is going to be encoding something about what you're planning on doing with your arm your leg whatever right now and even in and in primary motor cortex, there's also a really lovely homunculus. So there's a lovely layout of the body system. So you can find the neurons that correspond to the head and the neck and the shoulders and the torso and to the legs and to the feet and the huge representations of the hands, particularly in us, because we obviously we have such fine-grained control over our fingers that we have many, many tens of thousands, probably millions of neurons for each finger that allow us to do these dexterous things that we do. Mark, as I was reading The Spike, I kept thinking about a conversation that I had with Lisa Feldman Barrett a month or so back, where she talks about how the brain is really good at predicting things that haven't crossed our sensory path just yet. And you eventually do get to this with something called spontaneous spikes. As fast as these sensory-inspired spikes happen, they do have their limits. You say that the key in us making a choice in a situation as our brain and its neural spikes are still processing things is spontaneous spikes. How so? Yeah, so the, the book I talk about the fact that brains are facing a strong speed limit problem of the fact that I see in an ideal world, we would have an infinite amount of time to observe what's happening around us, to be able to take full stock of 
the things around us to be able to incorporate that into a full view of the world to then be able to make a decision based on that, that's what we're going to do, and then make a movement thereafter. If we decided to move in that kind of way, then we would be spending most of our lives motionless while our brains process what was going on around us, waiting for something, information to be sent to then go ahead and move. And although spikes are fairly nippy things, they also travel at a finite speed. So I give the example in the book of a giraffe. Although the axon that runs from a giraffe's hoof up to its spinal cord is about as fast an axon as you see in any animal on the planet, if that giraffe clipped its hoof on a stone in the savannah, then it's going to take about 40 to 50 milliseconds for that signal to even arrive at the spinal cord, let alone be processed to move its foot away from the stone and go back again. So we have this strong speed limit where spikes being passed from neuron to neuron are going to create delay after delay after delay after delay in understanding what's happening in the outside world. And to come get around that problem is what I've invoked in the book is the probably the role of the spontaneous spikes. So the spontaneous spikes are another of my favorite mysteries, just like the dark neurons and synaptic failure we talked about. They're outlined in various ways in the book. We know that the brain can generate its own spikes. It doesn't need information from the outside world to generate them. So there are two ways this can happen. One is that there, are, there exists neurons that simply send spikes themselves, no matter what is happening to them. So you can cut these neurons out of the brain, put them in a Petri dish, and they'll still send spikes. So they have no input whatsoever, but they're still sending these spikes away down their axon. And most of those neurons are found in the sort of the midbrain, the bits in the middle, which particularly neurons that send neuromodulators, so things like dopamine, they tend to be, because we like the brain to be constantly awash in dopamine and serotonin, the neurons that send those things tend to be neurons that send spikes constantly, constantly releasing this stuff into our brain. The other way of making spontaneous spikes is that because all these neurons are connected together in this big, messy mesh of neurons in the picking cortex, that it, there are millions upon millions of feedback loops in there. So spikes sent from one neuron to another will eventually be sent back again. So it means that all these feedback loops means that these circuits can make their own spikes. Once you start them spiking, they can self-sustain the spikes within them. And that means that, well, if that's going to happen naturally just because of the wiring between these neurons, then it'd be great if they had a function. And the argument in the book is really that the function they have is to solve the speed limit problem. The spontaneous spikes that are going around around the brain, is what they're doing is they are, because they're arriving, they're coming from, say, neurons in visual cortex that are meaning edges in the world, that they are predicting those edges are going to exist. And the reason those predictions kind of might turn out to be accurate is because, of course, those neurons have come to mean that kind of edges because they've been exposed to those edges over much of your lifetime. So it is generally true that a particular set of edges happens in the world quite often. And those neurons are then going to be quite reliably predicting those edges whenever they fire spikes. Was what you just described your eternal cycle theory? Yes. Okay. Exactly. So I end the book on talking about, because the book itself is a journey, as we, as we state, said before. There's a journey from the retina through to the early visual bits of cortex, through the uh, sort of regions of cortex that turn what's are uh, simple elements of an image into uh, coherent objects, like cookies in a box and a desk and co-workers moving around into spikes that are then making decisions about whether to take the cookie, about memories of where people are around you in this, this office environment that you've got the reader in finally to then move the arm to go and take that cookie. 
And so that journey is this journey from the sensory information coming in to being processed into to useful information about what's in the world, to being used to make decisions, to being used to make a, to make a movement. But most of the spikes in our brains are almost certainly spontaneous. So they aren't related to the stuff happening in the world directly. They're not caused by the world or caused by the movement you're making or causing the movement you're going to make. Rather, they are there in the brain all the time. So this eternal looping of this spikes, this feedback between neurons that's making these spikes is probably more important to understand right now than it is to understand what's happening by this sensory driven information coming into the brain. You emphasize at the beginning and end of this book that we are in the golden age of systems neuroscience right now, able to learn so much in such a short amount of time, and that seems to be accelerating. Why are you optimistic about the future of spikes? Two reasons, really. So one slightly pragmatic reason is that this area of neuroscience, the area of neuroscience that is really interested in capturing as many spikes as possible from many neurons as possible, is evidently just growing enormously. So more and more people, more and more researchers are joining this field. We have things like this, the special US brain initiative that's pouring billions of dollars into this area to really develop, develop this technology. And what's great is that this investment is really paying off. The technology development is accelerating even faster. I finished writing the book about a year ago. It's accelerating even faster than I said it was accelerating then. So we've just had reports, for example, last month of a new setup, an imaging setup, which now lets us record couple of hundred thousand and in particular configurations a million simultaneous neurons in a cortex of a mouse and that number of neurons is so overwhelming enormous that it's not quite clear how we even look at that amount of data let alone make sense of it so in part we have to take obviously the scientists word for it they record the million neurons because they can't show us they record the million neurons it's impossible for them to plot that or show it in any kind of database it's just we did it it happened and a million neurons in the cortex of a mouse is about one-tenth of all the neurons in the cortex of a mouse. So it's, it's getting closer and closer to the point where we can genuinely say, well, we definitely have enough neurons now. Now we need to understand them, understand them better. So in many respects, the acceleration technology is getting very far ahead of our ability to make theoretical sense of what they mean. Well, that means that that's, in many ways, it's terrific. We have this huge open playing field now to go and play in of, of ideas to come up with and things to test, knowing that the technology, for once, is ahead of where we want we are, instead of being behind. Does anything concern you about the future of spikes right now? There's a couple of things I touched on the book. The thing that I am most concerned about is a thing called the explanatory gap. So everything we know about spikes comes from, obviously, recording in animals, recording in mice, recording in flies, in zebrafish, in nematode worms, in a whole range of animals that we, we use for these experiments. And what we're missing, of course, is detailed knowledge of the spikes that are happening in our brains, our, the human brains, when we're doing the human things that we do. So we know the neurons are the same. So we are a primate, a mammal. We know that our brain structure is extremely similar to that of a chimpanzee and rather similar to that of a mouse. So we know that much of what we learn in the mouse, we can translate to our brains beautifully. Well, there's a little explanatory gap where, of course, there are things that we do as humans that no other animal does, right? So we have our language, we can speak, we understand speech, we can read, we can write. We have maths, we have painting and sculpture and creativity. We have much of the creativity of, of art and science and all of our subjective experiences too. And these things are, there's an explanatory gap there because we don't have, spikes are how the brain works, but we don't have 
bikes from humans, except in really special cases where we can record them from epilepsy patients with implanted electrodes or Parkinson's patients with deep planted electrodes for deep brain stimulation. So we don't have this knowledge of spiking that happens in our brains when we speak or the spiking that happens when we're creating stuff or the spiking that happens when we are or writing or reading. And indeed, particularly, no, no spikes at all during our subjective experiences, like, you know, whether it be the subjective experiences of emotions that we feel or the experiences of being conscious in any way. So into that gap can fall all kinds of speculation about how brains do these things, about how brains you know, make language, about how we are creative, about um, how consciousness works, which we can't ground in reality because we can't call spikes from humans. So plugging that gap somehow is the thing that's most concerning to me. And finally, what do you think of Elon Musk's Neuralink? So Neuralink is an exciting shot across the bow for neuroscientists. So, so Musk's stated aim for Neuralink, ultimate aim, is that he, he's found this company as a way of circumventing his deep concerns about the future of AI, about AI, you know, superhuman AI, superintelligent AI taking over the world. So he wants humans to be an interface directly with AI, and his solution is to record from inside human brains and have the human brain talk directly to the AI, both in terms of the spikes coming out of the human brain and the AI being to write back into it eventually. How that would work, we don't know. But given that the goal is, stated goal is to record spikes from inside the human brain, that opens up a whole sort of ethical minefield because we, as we've just been over, we never and have never recorded spikes from a healthy human brain because it would seem unthinkable given the sort of surgery risks involved. Why would you ever open up someone's brain to put some electrodes in it just for curiosity? The risks both of immediate surgery and of infection of the site where you put the electrodes in and so on, that would seem crazy. But by stating this as, as their aim, obviously Neuralink are asking a really serious question, which is, is there any point where we would be comfortable recording spikes from a human brain? We're building the tech. So they obviously they're building this, in their case, they're building this neural lace stuff, which is designed to be as easy to implant as possible with minimal damage, to be flexible so that it doesn't damage tissue that's inside, to be made of material that does not react inside the brain so the immune system doesn't attack it, it can't get infected, so it can be as safe as possible. And obviously its first use cases will be in cases for you know, as neuroprosthetics for people who have paralysis where we want to restore movement, that makes sense. But obviously their goal is to use it in a healthy human brain to interface with the AI. So they make it as safe as they possibly can. At what point will someone just say, Hey, I, I want that implanted in my head. Look, I'll give you, you know, I'll pay for it. So they're asking a question which we need to consider of when is it going to be suitable for use in healthy humans, if ever. Would you be amongst those willing to uh, test out the beta model for those who aren't dealing with uh, extreme circumstances? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure that they would. I, it would always be tempting. And I can, the thing is, I can imagine there would be people who would be strongly tempted. Because as I note in the book, 60 years ago, if you told people it was now routine to do plastic surgery, major surgery on people to adjust their faces, to adjust their bodies, undergo the risks of infection, blood loss and death on the operating table just to look a bit better, people have said you were nuts, but that's now routine. So we know never to say never if I say one, you know, 20 years time it will be, it'll be acceptable for people to implant electrodes in someone else's head just because they want to, then we can imagine that's not an impossible scenario. It's 
The plastic surgery analogy is a very interesting one, and that's not surprising coming from you either. I thought that this book was a fantastic blend of information, of course, but also some really great examples to help explain to the layperson what's going on while also showcasing your sense of humor as well. So thank you for all of those things, Mark. Thank you for writing this book, and thank you for the time today. Uh, Thank you, Trey. That's been great. Thank you very much. And thanks to you for listening. Reminder to check out booksonpod.com to hear all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.